Good morning and welcome. I, I know, like many of you, I, I just love everything about Christmas, the, the music, the food, uh, the opportunity to gather, to think about what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. Let me set up where we're going by telling you a story. I love to spend uh, downtime skiing, either water skiing, snow skiing. It's kind of how I was raised, what I've done since I was really little, and I, and I just love it. A couple of weeks ago, I was out west snow skiing with a couple of buddies, a couple of friends, uh, three other guys, all from here at Wheaton Bible Church. On our uh, third day, our second to last day, we got way too overconfident. Uh, cocky would be another way to say it. And we found ourselves in some very difficult terrain. And by that I mean it was really steep, a lot of bumps, a lot, lot of moguls, and it, it was difficult. And about halfway down this difficult terrain, I stopped, probably for the fifth or sixth time, and, and I started to think, and I had a couple different thoughts going on in my head uh, at, at the same time. First, I, I realized that I really wasn't skiing, I was surviving. <laughs> and I was surviving by sliding, and it was ugly, and I was in trouble. Then about the same time, I had this other thought, I, I recognized I was really mad. I was really mad at my buddies. I was thinking, why in the world did I let these morons talk me into this? <laughs> you know, we're too old for this. We shouldn't be doing this. And then the third thing going on is as I looked down, I realized it was about to get a whole lot worse because we were going into some really deep powder, some really deep snow. So I kept skiing slowly, but sure enough, I fell. I mean, I wiped out. Now, it wasn't an awful wipeout. I didn't lose my skis, falls, what we call a yard sale. That, that didn't happen, but I was down, and I could not get back up. I put my pole down. My pole just kept sinking in the snow. I couldn't get any leverage. And plus, and I hate to admit this, I'm getting a little older. It's a little harder. So I could not get up. So one of the guys, Steve, who was with me and saw this happen, and Steve happens to be one of our elders, uh, started to ski over to me. And as he's coming, he does a complete and total massive wipeout. I mean, he flips up in the air. His skis are gone, poles gone, yard sale. And he lands right next to me, I mean right next to me, upside down. He's looking up into the sky. And he looks over at me, he's got his helmet on, I can barely see his face, and he is laughing, laughing hysterically, and he says to me, help has arrived. <laughs> and that is precisely the message of Christmas. Isn't it? Help has arrived. The eternal, infinite God became a human being. A Jewish baby. And came to earth in order to rescue us from our brokenness, our, our dysfunction, our fall, the fact that we really can't get up came to rescue us from our sin. 
Jesus Christ, if you will, allowed himself to be turned upside down to save us. And so today, this morning, this last Sunday of Advent, uh, before Christmas, I want to look at this Christmas grace. I want to look at Jesus, what the Bible has to say uh, about our Savior. I want to look at what this help that has arrived really means and what it means for each and every one of us. So if you have a Bible, uh, grab it, turn it on. There are Bibles in the racks in front of you. And turn with me to a little bitty book in the New Testament called Philippines. 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 Philippians. <laughs> I'm still recovering from my injuries. <laughs> and Philippians chapter 2. It's, if you're using a Bible in front of you, it's page 1,179. And we're here in Philippians rather than a gospel uh, because Philippians chapter 2 explains the incarnation of Jesus Christ, God becoming a man, as well as any passage in the New Testament. So in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we have the history of the birth of Jesus Christ. And whether we believe in Jesus or not, the birth of Jesus Christ is in fact a matter of history. But here in Philippians chapter 2, what we have is a different slant. We have the theology, the explanation. But what I want you to see in this wonderful passage, in this little bitty letter, this little bitty book, is that Paul pulls out the incarnation of Jesus Christ, uh, the Christmas story, not just to teach it, but to deal with problems, problems in the church, specifically interpersonal relational problems. And so what we're going to do is we're going to look at those problems, we're going to look at the problem, then we're going to look at the ideal, and then we're going to look at the solution, the Christmas solution. So let's go back. Phil read this passage to us as he was lighting the candle. Now I want to go back and underscore some of it. Let's start in verse 3. The Apostle Paul is writing under inspiration and he says, Do nothing. Uh, that would be nothing. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but rather in humility consider others better than yourselves. Well, what does that look like? Well, he tells us a little what it looks like in the next verse. It's each of you looking out not only to your own interests, but also to the interest of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Now, here we have the theology of the Christmas story, the incarnation, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant. Being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place, gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now let's start with the problem. What in the world is the problem? Well, according to verse 3, the problem is twofold. The human heart is characterized by selfishness and pride. In Paul's language, it's selfish ambition and vain conceit. 
family relationships, church relationships, uh, form the two strongest of all the relational bonds. Yet throughout history, there's been fighting, brokenness, disharmony in both. Now this church that Paul is writing to in Philippi is a healthy church, a reasonably healthy church, a solid church. But according to both chapter 1 and chapter 4, there's conflict, tension, people butting heads, people not getting along in the church. So here in chapter 2, Paul tells us, now follow me in this, Paul tells us that under the fins of conflict are two lethal sharks. Selfishness and pride. Selfishness is pursuing what you want regardless of anything or anyone around you. It's pursuing what you want regardless of the cost. Uh, You're in it for you. And apparently, Christians aren't immune. If you go back to chapter 1 and verse 17, Paul says it's why some, in fact, preach the gospel. Now think about that. What Paul is saying is there is selfish ambition in the pulpit, in the church. Why? Because there is selfish ambition in the human heart. Uh, Selfishness is to relationships... A disharmony, what a shark is to a fin. And so is pride. Only it's worse. Paul uses a, two words translated in our English Bibles, vain conceit. And, and those two words describe a, a baseless, empty, vain, exaggerated sense of uh, uh, self. Now, selfishness is bad, but pride is even much more lethal. When I was in college and trying to figure out for the very first time in my life whether or not I believed in God and and what in the world I thought about Jesus, and it was all kind of new to me, when I was trying to figure that out, I read two books that were life-changing. One of them, the first one, was C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity. I read it as a non-Christian, and I loved it. It convinced me of the existence of God. I actually read it when I was out west skiing. And I'd look at the mountains, and I'd read, and I, and I came to the conclusion I've never wavered from, that God has to exist. In C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity, he has an excellent little chapter on pride. And I read that, and man, did it nail me. Man, did it hit me. Look at what he says. He says, there is one vice of which no man in the world is free, which everyone in the world loathes when he sees it in someone else, and of which hardly any people except Christians even imagine that they are guilty themselves. There is no fault which makes a man more unpopular, no fault which we are more unconscious of in ourselves. Me have pride, you know. And the more we have it in ourselves, the more we dislike it in others. The vice I'm talking about is pride, unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness, and all that are mere flea bites in comparison. 
It was through pride that the devil became the devil. Pride leads to every other vice. It is a complete anti-God state of mind. Pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than the next man. We say that people are proud of being rich or clever or good-looking, but they are not. They are proud of being richer, cleverer, or better-looking than others. It is pride which has been the chief cause of misery in every nation and every family since the world began. Other vices may sometimes bring people together. You may find good fellowship and jokes and friendliness among drunken people or unchaste people, but pride always means enmity. It is enmity. And not only enmity between man and man, but enmity to God. That's what Paul is talking about with these words, vain conceit. It's pride. And it was a problem in this otherwise healthy church. Now others who comment on this tell us that these two words also mean uh, and can describe the person who is glory empty, glory starved. Describe the person who, who is starved for validation and approval. Because deep down they're operating on fumes, they're empty. And they don't feel they measure up. Now I think a 19-year-old gang member uh, this gang member never felt, has never felt validated by society, didn't do well in school, never felt validated, uh, approved of in school, and now he's walking the streets. And if someone crosses him, someone slights him, what does he do? He pulls a gun. He's glory starved. He doesn't know it. Now we... Uh, may not pull guns, but all of us are equally glory-starved for validation. Uh, researchers today tell us this is a lot of what's going on in Facebook. What's going on in Facebook? People attempt for validation. Uh, think about marriage. Someone feels overlooked in a marriage over a, a period of time, and the gun they pull is an affair or a divorce. In work, they quit. We all have different guns. Now, you may be here this morning, and you may be unsure of what you think about God, what you think about Jesus, what you think of the, about the Bible, and man, I, I'm glad you're here. I, I, I've been there. But what I want you to see right at this point is how profound how realistic the Bible is. Because what the Bible is telling us here is underneath all the dysfunction and all the interpersonal garbage in our homes, in our churches, and the violence and hate and racism and war in the world lurk the lethal sharks of selfishness and pride. And it's verse 3. Why? Because we have turned away from God. And our hearts have become corrupted. 
and self-absorbed. And we have this emptiness because we were made to live with God and we have this emptiness that we routinely try to fill with success or, or, or possessions or, or, or friends or our appearance or cocaine or on and on and on. And when that emptiness gets threatened, we pull the gun. And for each of us, it's different. And and this is where the Bible is so profound, and I want you to see this regardless of where you are. What, What the apostle is telling us, your biggest problem is never what's going on around you. It's never, ever your circumstances. It's always what's going on inside you, your heart. These sharks, your selfishness, your pride. When I fell skiing a couple weeks ago out in Colorado, I needed help to get up. Man, I I just couldn't get up. But my deeper problem, your deeper problem, is the relational chaos, uh, the knockdowns we experience repeatedly because of what's going on in here. This was a good church, but there were wipeouts all over the place. It's why Paul wrote this letter to the church. Uh, Selfishness and pride separate us from one another, and they separate us from God. Now, the fin is the conflict. The shark is our heart. And if you get that, it changes everything. That's the problem. The problem is universal. Now let's go to the ideal. Let's look at what the apostle has to say in this fascinating passage. He tells us that the ideal, or he describes the ideal in the second half of verse 3 and verse 4. And look at what he says. He says, in humility, consider others better than yourselves. And he goes on and tells us what that looks like in verse 4. So the ideal is humility. Now, in contrast to the first part of verse 3, when he's talking about selfishness and pride, uh, and what causes us to fight, here what we do is, here what Paul is doing is he's given us a, a description of what the heart that doesn't fight looks like. It's a humble heart. Humility is modesty, it's deference. Rooted in seeing yourself as God sees you. As a sinner on the, on the one hand, as a, a child of grace in Jesus Christ on the other. Now what this means is if you are here and you are a Christian and Paul is writing this letter to Christians, if you've come to Jesus Christ and trusting in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, then what's underneath this is that you understand your dual identity. That on the one hand, uh, you're sinful and you own the greed, the pride, the lust, uh, the dishonesty, the self-centeredness, the hard-heartedness of your own heart. And you see that. You, You see yourself as a sinner before God. But on the other hand, and this is the second half of your identity and why we call it a dual identity, you cling like crazy to the grace and the forgiveness and the righteousness that is freely yours through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And you have this dual identity always going on and you keep 
keep it always before you, and that produces humility. But in the first century world, man, humility was seen as weakness. It was seen as softness. Because what, uh, in the first century world, what people were about was power and strength and dominance. But this word humility occurs 250, 270 times in the Bible for a reason. And the reason is that the only way a human being, any, any one of us, any human being anywhere in here, the only way we will ever gain access to God, gain access into the presence of God, gain forgiveness through Jesus Christ, gain a relationship with Jesus Christ, is if we understand that we bring nothing to the table with God except our sin which makes the death of Christ necessary. And therefore, we can do nothing to earn or merit our own salvation. Nothing. And therefore, we cling to, we rest in, we bask in the wonder of God's forgiveness and what he has done for us that began on Christmas in the life and the death of of Jesus Christ. And when you get that, when you get this dual identity, it gets filed under humility. And according to the Bible, the only thing that will uh, destroy a person now and forever is a lack of humility. A refusal to submit to God, a refusal to depend upon the work of, of Jesus Christ. Uh, But let me go on. Let me nuance this uh, just uh, another step. Um, I I do not want you to misunderstand. Humility is not being down on yourself. I'm a terrible person. No. Nor is humility being full of yourself. I'm the world's greatest. (laughs) Uh, Humility is not uh, never setting goals. It's not never having dreams. It's not never having opinions. It's not being a doormat. Humility, this ideal that Paul is lining out here, isn't thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. Lewis said that. It's thinking of yourself less because you're focused on Christ and you're focused on others. You know, if you're going to a Christmas party, you don't walk into the party and say, man, I want you to look at my wrist, or I want you to look at my fingers. If your wrist and your fingers are healthy, you're not talking about them, you're not focused on them. If they're not, then you are. Healthy people aren't focused on themselves. Unhealthy people are. And that's what's going on here. That's why this is so fascinating. Now, uh, let me get personal. The other night, Rhonda and I had a disagreement. Now, that's preacher ease for an argument. (laughs) You know, we as Christians don't argue, we disagree. Yeah, right. Uh, We were arguing. Now, I have told you before, I have a way of messing up our anniversary. 
And so a couple of years ago, what did I do? Well, I scheduled my colonoscopy on our anniversary. <laughs> True story. And as I said then, or in talking about it, the good thing was I didn't schedule Rhonda's. <laughs> Would have been a problem. Well, anyways, it was our anniversary, and we had this argument. And as Rhonda and I were discussing the issue, she said something to me. She said, Rob, you have made this all about you. And I happened to be listening. <laughs> and I realized she was absolutely right. I had been hurt. So what did I do? Well, in love, I hurt her. Because I had made it all about me. What Paul is saying in the second half of verse 3 and verse 4 is that humility is making it about others, not about you. Uh, in verse 4, it's making it about their interests. Now, this is the ideal. And frankly, in the first century world, this worldview uh, created a relational revolution that has never stopped. It's so countercultural. But Paul knows we're not up to this. We're not equal to this. Paul knows that living this way is impossible for all of us, certainly for me. He knows that we have fallen and we can't get up on our own. So beginning in verse 5 and through verse 11, he moves to the solution. He moves to the cure. He moves to Christmas. He moves to Jesus and announces that help has arrived in Jesus Christ. That Jesus is the solution to the fin, our conflict, and the, the deeper heart problems that lie underneath, the sharks in our lives. Now what I want you to note is what Paul doesn't do here. In, in a context dealing with interpersonal conflict, what he doesn't do is he doesn't point to principles and say, here are the five things, go do it. No, he doesn't point to principles, he points to a person. He points to Jesus. He goes vertical. Now, I know some of you aren't sure about what you think about Jesus. But I want you to see three things the Apostle Paul says about Jesus Christ here. He's going to talk about where Jesus was, then where he went, and then where he is now. Where Jesus was before he was born as a Jewish baby, where he went 2,000 years ago in that birth, and where he is now, I, I, I mean today. Where was Jesus? Let's start there. Well, look at verse 6. According to verse 6, he was in heaven, where he had been throughout all eternity, because as Paul says twice in verse 6, he was fully God. He says, being in very nature God, and sharing equality with God. Two phrases that are strong statements of Jesus' deity. 
In other words, what the Paul, is saying, Paul is saying is before Jesus Christ came to earth, before he's born as this baby, there was never a millisecond in all of eternity when Jesus Christ was not God in heaven. Now at the end of the day, we only have three options with Jesus Christ. Either he was a liar or a lunatic or the Lord. Paul is saying he is the Lord. I personally know he is the Lord because he has totally changed my life and given me a happiness and a peace and a sense of purpose that I never thought possible. And here in verse 6, what Paul is doing is telling us this baby born in Bethlehem was fully human, but fully God, equal. Now why? Why does Paul begin this way? Why does he begin by describing the deity and the pre-existence of, uh, of Jesus Christ when he's getting to the incarnation? The, the answer is to make the greatest possible contrast between where Jesus was, heaven, and now, according to verses 7 and 8, as he moves on, where he went to do what he did. Where did Jesus go? No, he came to earth. Paul says he made himself nothing. In other words, the prince became a pauper. Becoming nothing uh, literally means he emptied himself. Now, not of his deity, that would be impossible, but of his glory, of his uh, splendor, of the uninterrupted experience, perfect experience he had in heaven. Uh, And he took upon himself human nature. That's why Paul uh, says he was made in human likeness. Now, in heaven... If you and I had the opportunity uh, to go to heaven around the time uh, right before Jesus was born, and and if we saw Jesus in his glory, what would have happened? Well, it probably would have knocked us out. Certainly knocked us over. It would have rendered us speechless. uh, For a moment, thoughtless. We we couldn't uh, comprehend it. And when Jesus was born as a baby... He left all that glory behind. But there's more. Paul continues and tells us that when Jesus was born, he didn't become a mighty ruler. He didn't become some stud athlete like me. It's a joke. Or some celebrity. Jesus Christ didn't even become an ordinary person. Paul says he became a lowly servant, a servant. And if you go back to the miraculous prophecy of Isaiah chapter 53, where 700 years before the birth of Christ, the prophet looks ahead to describe uh, the Christ, what Isaiah says is he had no physical beauty, majesty, to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. So God became a man. 
Not even an ordinary man, a, a servant, an unattractive one at that. In other words, he was born small, no king at all. At all. Why? Uh, why would God do this? And the answer is to die on the cross. Paul says he humbled himself by becoming obedient. Obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. That is death by crucifixion. The descent doesn't get any lower than that. We're talking first century Roman crucifixion. Look at how the ESV study Bible describes it. Crucifixion was not simply a convenient way of executing prisoners. It was the ultimate indignity, a public statement by Rome that the crucified one was beyond contempt. The excruciating physical pain was magnified by the degradation and humiliation. No other form of death, no matter how prolonged or physically agonizing, could match the crucifixion as an absolute destruction of the person. It was the ultimate counterpoint to the divine majesty of the pre-existent Christ and thus was the ultimate expression of Christ's obedience to the Father. Why? Why did Jesus allow himself to be rejected, to be tortured, to be beaten, to experience that pain, that anguish, and to be crucified when all he had to do was speak the word and in a nanosecond everyone would have been destroyed why the answer is to reveal to hard-hearted people like you and me the depths the extent of his love by taking upon himself on the cross our sin and the punishment we deserve so that we might receive the acceptance, the righteousness, and the inheritance that he deserves, that he won when we believe. And that's the gospel. What is Christmas? Christmas is one message. Help has arrived in Jesus Christ. And the cure, the solution to all our relational conflict, all the turmoil, uh, the fighting, the divorce, the terrorism, the racism, uh, the violence, the abuse, the, uh, all of that. Uh, the, the solution to all of that is Jesus Christ, crucified and raised from the dead. It's Philippians chapter 2. And it's why God exalted him to the highest place and gave him a name that is above every name. So knowing that we can't get up, that we could not get up, Jesus allowed himself to be turned upside down to rescue us from our sin if we will believe. And this is Christmas grace. This is the Christmas story. 
This is why Jesus Christ alone is the hope for every headline you read. Why Jesus Christ alone is the hope for the world. Now two implications and I'm done. First, relative to approval. This Christmas grace means you and I are more precious to God than all the jewels, all the natural resources under the earth. You are more precious to God in Jesus Christ than all the oil reserves on the planet. Why? How can we say that? Because Jesus Christ died for you. And if you take that into your heart and you let it fill your heart, you let it fill your mind, you, you, you soak on it, you meditate on it, it will transform you. It will change your life. Uh, somebody has said to be adored by someone you adore is heaven. We have that in Jesus. To be adored by someone you adore is heaven. It's, it's Jesus. And we all uh, want people to like us. We all want everybody to think we're great. But what this means is you can lose other people's approval, even people in your life that really matter to you. You can lose their approval and you can be okay because you have the far more... Uh, Profound, the infinitely greater approval of Jesus Christ. And to think, to tell yourself, I am not good enough, is frankly a lie from the pit of hell. A lie. Now, second, and I'm done with this, relative to humility, this passage is in the context of humility. What Paul is teaching, I want you to see this, is that the path to, to humility isn't you digging deeper, isn't you saying, okay, i got to find five steps to becoming more humble. You do, not, you do not become humble by focusing on humility. It's counterintuitive. You, buy, you become humble by taking your eyes off yourself and looking to Jesus. And what he has done for you. And you rest in it. You bask in it. You rejoice in it. And you lay your life down for Jesus just like he laid his life down for you. I mean, think about it. Talk about amazing. Jesus Christ's reputation didn't mean anything to him. He gave it all up for you. That's Christmas. And so humility then is being so full of Jesus, so full of his spirit that your reputation doesn't mean anything to you and you lay it down for him and for the people around you. This is the upside down incarnation of Jesus Christ. And it's the ultimate example Verse 5, Paul says, have this attitude in yourselves that is also in Christ Jesus. And it's the ultimate power, uh, power that enables you to live a, a full and happy, upside down life in the gospel. 
What is the church? The church is a contrast society because we are exiles. Exiles. And we do not win by winning. We win by surrendering to the one who gave himself for us. To the only one who can make us stand. Help has arrived. His name is Jesus. And if you've never done so, come to him right now. Let's pray. Father, here we are in a, in a world that does not, does not appear to be getting better. And the terrorism, the violence, the noise, the hate, the racism, um, the war. Well, you see it all, God. And so we come to you because you sent your son, Jesus Christ. And if any of you, by the way, are here this morning and God is speaking to you and you haven't come to Christ, you're not sure how you've responded to Christ. You can come to Jesus right now and find forgiveness and righteousness and eternal life in him. And just pray with me something like this. Father, I confess to you my sin has separated me from you. I thank you that Jesus died on the cross for my sin. And I want to receive Jesus as my Savior and Lord right now. Come into my life and take it over. Change me from the inside out. And Father, for the rest of us, we are painfully, too painfully aware of these sharks in our hearts. And we ask that you would give us a greater grace to look beyond ourselves and not to be about ourselves, but to see the wonder of the Christ of Christmas. That we will have a story to tell. And that we, God, We'll tell it to the mountains. Amen.